Welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. You are listening to the Story Series. This is a special follow-up interview with Chris Marshall on how to read the Bible as story. Enjoy. All right, welcome to the Capital Mosaic Podcast. This is Justin here. We have a special session for you today uh, where we sat down with Chris Marshall to grill him on how to read the Bible as story. Uh, For those who don't know Chris's work, Chris has taught uh, Christian studies at Victoria University in Wellington. Uh, He's written several books, the most recent being Compassionate Justice. He is passionate about restorative justice, and uh, around the house we kind of know him as a DIY legend, and it's a very big honor for us in our community to be able to pick his brain, Uh, and so we'll we'll get to that in a moment. I'm also very lucky to have uh, my friend Sam Coates with me. Uh, During the interview, he's a man with a filing cabinet full of all sorts of good stuff in his brain, Uh, and so I brought him here really to ask the intelligent questions, and so Sam uh, will uh, be bringing the heat for Chris, and so let's jump right in. Chris is going to start us off by giving us a bit of a summary on how we read the Bible in light of the grand story within it, not only how, but why we should take this approach. So I'll turn you over to Chris. Well, I mean, I think Christianity has is necessarily a text-based religion. Um, it's not the only religion that's got sacred texts, but it's I think it's uniquely committed to its text because it's only through the text that we know anything about Jesus. Mm. So, um, if we didn't have the Bible, we wouldn't really know anything about the one who lies at the very centre of our of our commitment. So. The importance of scripture, I think, is is, is um, unquestionable. It's not the only source of knowledge or the only source of guidance we have, but mm. it's you know it's the, it's the most important and it's the kind of normative reference point. So the question then becomes: Well, how do you read this text in a way that it's supposed to be read? Mm. And certainly in my upbringing, the tendency was to regard it as a collection of either timeless truths or, or a kind of uh, assemblage of, of sacred spiritual ideas that God would use to speak to you in a particular situation. Um, almost a kind of magical quality about the text, that there was something about this text that was unique because somehow God spoke through it. And in a sense, that's of course true. I mean, God mm. does speak through the text. But I think what we're, we're trying to suggest in the series is that the Bible in its completed form, a collection of 66 documents, um, tells a big story. Mm. And it's a story at the beginning, and it's a story with a you know, crucial turning point, and it's a story that points towards a final um, sort of resolution of, of things. And so we're trying to, I think, in the series, um, become acquainted with the direction of that larger story. And... The significance of reading the Bible as a story, I mean, we've still got to unpack that, but I mm. think it is, I mean, it is, I think, an important um, starting point, I guess. I mean, it doesn't mean that you just read it as a story or that you read everything in it as story, but if you want to make sense of the larger um, mean, meaning of the text, I think you need to see it as a, you know, as a story, as a narrative. Mm. So, so with the Bible... I guess what another way of saying it is to recognize the story arc, to recognize the fact that the beginning of the story is not where the story ends and um, to recognize there's development there. Yeah. And so for 
sometimes you know when you when you're talking with people and they ask you questions about the Bible, they'll level an accusation like, "Oh, well, look, the Bible says not to eat shellfish," you know, and and you or people eat shellfish yeah. and it don't seem to have a problem with it. Clearly, you don't take the Bible seriously. You're a hypocrite. Yeah. And when you respond with something like the story arc kind of answer, they just sort of look at you like you're crazy. Like, yeah. no, no, you have to take the whole Bible for what it's worth, yeah. as if everything is on face value. So yeah. I guess the question is, how did we? How do you think we got to a point where the story arc isn't kind of an obvious thing to us? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the story has always been... I guess people would have always recognised there is a kind of narrative structure to this, mm. um, to this text. But I don't think people have necessarily, certainly in terms of ordinary people engaging with the text, I don't think they've necessarily seen the significance of the development within the story. So mm. there's almost a Quranic view of biblical inspiration around in the Christian church, which is that um, the text is inspired, it's given to us by God, which I believe, but that everything in it has a kind of equal sort of significance. It all, as you said, it all stands on mm. a kind of a sort of um, common foundation. It's a sort of flat text. There's mm. no development in it. There's no um, so so. The idea is that God has sort of almost dictated these words, and if you take the Bible seriously, then you just simply have to, you know, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Kind mm. of. You know, somebody's called it a bumper sticker. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, nobody ever does that in reality. They claim to be doing that, but everybody is selective in the way they read the text. And so even those who say, you just got to believe it and, and do what it says, in actual fact, they, they do that to a little bit of the text, not, mm. to, not to the whole lot. So, um, so I think the problem is not so much that people haven't recognised that there is a, a narrative arc in it, but they haven't recognised the hermeneutical implications of that, what this means for how you make sense of what the text is saying to us today. Mm. So it's a failure to recognize the development in it, the provisionality of certain parts in the story, where the story is going, what difference, as I said in the talk, what difference Jesus makes to the way that you read the text. I think it's those sort of hermeneutical things that people have been less clear on, rather than failing to see that it's a story or that it contains stories. Mm. So just just kind of building on that, Chris, because mm. one of the things that's interesting, I think a lot of Christians today will, will be okay to do that for parts of the Old Testament, parts of the, you know the first account where we kind of say, all right, you know, we don't stone people anymore because, yeah. you know, we, we, kind of, we kind of can pick and choose a bit better with the Old Testament. But for the New Testament, for certain commands or maybe commands is too strong, instructions like that Paul gives, say about the role of women in church, how do, how do you take kind of issues like that, which also seem very time and place, yeah. um, but kind of apply this sort of story framework to make sense, yeah. so say like, a, like an epistle? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in in the New Testament, one of the things that's been helpful for me is to recognise that the New Testament affirms principles that point beyond where it was actually possible to realise the principles in the, at the time. So, I mean, one of the criticisms that's been levelled against Paul, and Paul gets a lot of criticism for lots yeah, of things, right. but one of the criticisms that's been commonly levelled against him is he, he didn't speak out against slavery. Mm. And, I mean, I think... It's a kind of cheap shot, really, because you you got to imagine being in a culture where slavery was was you know so accepted it was like as somebody said like electricity in a modern civilization. But there was, I think, within the gospel that Paul was articulating, there was a discomfort with the idea that that inequality was part of the human condition, and so you find the the kind of first stages of a sort of you know the Australian phrase of white anting this of sort of undermining the structures. 
um, in kind of initial ways, but pointing in a direction. And so when, you know, shamefully, hundreds and hundreds of years later, the church finally said, we, you know, finally, it wasn't actually that, you know, yeah. necessarily the church said it, but when it was finally recognized that slavery was something that was incompatible with the gospel, it was taking things further than even the New Testament took them. Mm. And I think with women, it's a similar kind of thing. So Paul is, um, or, or the early church is starting to realize what this gospel of freedom and equality means within the cultural constraints of the time. Mm. And Christian faith, I mean, it's a scandal of incarnation, really. It's always grounded in actual historical, cultural situations. And to some extent, it's always constrained by those circumstances. And so as, as the, the gospel of, of equality and of freedom began to unfold, um, the structures of patriarchy, I think, were white-handed. They were undermined, but never went as far as we've, we've, we've gone today. We've been able to take those principles further. So I, I think, you know, it's not so much the idea that the New Testament is provisional and we've got to move beyond it to another phase, which will make the New Testament look mm. like somehow it's been superseded, but rather, you know, as Act was it five, yep. four, five, four, five, <laughs> Act five of the of the story, um, the final act. Uh, we don't have the final scenes of the final act. We have the final act. We see um, this new reality working itself out in initial ways, and we need to move in the same direction mm. on these sorts of issues and and try to realize those principles in a fuller way than they were in their own in their own time. You know, in a sense, you could say this was even true for Jesus. I mean, Jesus. Uh, clearly accepted Gentiles on the same basis as Jews, but he saw his ministry as limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul went further than Jesus in terms of taking the gospel to the Gentile world. So I think even within the New Testament, you see the progression. progression. Yeah, it's it's a hard one for sure because. On the surface of several documents, if you were to just read them in isolation mm. from one another, it would seem like. Paul is literally saying some things that you know you find kind of abhorrent at, at certain points, and so I guess that's one of the things where you know you said there are other ways that God has spoken, you know, through tradition and cultural context and revelation, and yeah, because a, a lot of the cultural studies you do when you recognize, you know, say, um, is it Second Second Timothy where, or First Timothy where people, uh, Paul's talking about women and their adornment and being silent in church yeah, yeah. and. You know, the cultural commentators think he's talking about Corinthian women who are converted from the, the orgiastic cults coming and trying to place authority where they didn't actually have it. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, I guess, the epistles, somehow they do need to be rooted in history and do yeah. need to be yeah. understood for what they were. They weren't just blank instructions. They were responses to situations. That's right, they were situational, very much so. One of the metaphors that... Somebody's used Gordon Fee, I think, used was said reading the epistles is like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. Mm. So you're getting Paul's response to a set of circumstances that we don't have any independent access to, but we need to try and reconstruct in order to understand what it is that Paul is saying. Uh, not least in order to explain some of the tensions, almost contradictions in Paul. So Paul could say one thing in one set of circumstances and another. Even in First Corinthians, you know, you have the silencing of women in First Corinthians fourteen, but you have women praying in First Corinthians eleven. So, there's in order to make sense of those um, appearances of contradiction, you need to understand what the situation was that he was addressing. And I mean, it's not easy to do. It's a it's a it's a matter of reading between the lines and 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 trying to put together a puzzle. But 
you have to do it because mm. it's the gospel working itself out in actual real historical circumstances. Mm. Yeah. I have to say, I know a lot of this has come from that, that article that you referenced, the anti right lecture that he did in the was early 90s. I can't quite remember the time. Mm. But uh, the, you, you presented two ideas to us, which got uh, definitely challenged me and inspired me, which is this idea that when we use the story arc uh, and we place ourselves in Act 5, I think the metaphor that N.T. Wright presents is that we're uh, kind of, we're like actors who have an unfinished play and that yeah. we have been given an act and now we must yeah. act and improv it out while maintaining consistency but yeah. also acting creatively to yeah. sort of finish the story. And I do find that challenging, helpful and challenging. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to kind of, I think we're, we're already talking about this. When we talk about the, the principles there, and how, how do we kind of uh, maintain consistency? Do you have like mm. a, a check or a question or a way that you frame, how, is this action maintaining consistency with that overall? Yeah, oh, it's a really good question. And I, I mean, I don't have any answer to it. Mm. I mean, I don't think we can sort of get away from the responsibility to do this stuff as, as um, carefully and as faithfully as we can, but we'll, we're not necessarily... <laughs> know whether we're no, right or not. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess for me, it's a matter of consistency with the the value system, the priorities, um, the direction that the story is pointing. Um, with the, I, I guess, with the with the the message of freedom and equality and. Hope and though, I mean, though it's, it's at that level, I think we look for for consistency rather than at the kind of the, the kind of surface outworking and culture. So, I mean, the, again, in my background, there's always this quest to be to, to recover the New Testament church as though somehow there was some model back then that we needed to go back to. Um, whereas I think the, the the better way to look at it is to say that within the New Testament documents, we see the church. Uh, trying to live according to the, the the reality of the gospel in its own circumstances, and we need to see it as a kind of archetype, you know, rather than the prototype. It's not something we just copy; mm. it's something we learn from and then creatively reincarnate in our own day. Mm. But you know, I don't think there's any easy any easy sort of answer to how you can be sure that you're doing that faithfully <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and Christians will disagree on it and yeah. I mean in our own day issues of sexuality are the, are the you know, most obvious example of that yeah. what does it mean to live in a way that's consistent with the, the values that are the sexuality we see in the text but maybe allows for uh, yeah. um, different expressions of, of sexual fidelity than we've apparent before, I mean, this mm. is this is right in the, this the is complex. Yeah, yeah, this, is, this right. is tricky stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I think I said in the talk that the Christian tradition has always honoured the Word and the Spirit, mm. and it's the Spirit who helps the believing community that's struggling to be faithful to hear what the Word means today. And mm. that doesn't mean there's any hotline to the answer. That's I mean, right. we hear it by means of debate and argument that's and right. trial and error yeah, yeah. and. I mean that, and that's scary. But on the other hand, it's what it's the genius of the Christian tradition. I mean, that's what has allowed Christianity to to reincarnate itself in a multiple of cultural contexts, um, in a you know diversity of forms. I mean, that's what gives it its um, 
competitive edge, I think, <laughs> you know, compared to the idea that there's a once-for-all given reality that you somehow got to go back to and hold on to. Mm. I mean, it is. I, I think the point that you made mm. before, I've always been challenged by the... When, when Peter is essentially told to eat non-kosher food. That's right. right. I mean, that mo- we, we have in our story itself yeah. moments of, of what I think would be improvisation and creativity yep. where the spirit is moving the church beyond what it's known. Yep. And we know that that's actually in our tradition that's in, right. in several places. And so it's always this challenge to say we know it's there, yep. but that doesn't mean everything that we, <laughs> we come across is necessarily a step in a consistent direction. Yeah. But at the yep. same time, we don't get gridlocked into it has to be like this, yep. Yep. Um, which, is, which is challenging. That's right. Do you think the idea of, of canon might be a, a daunting thing for a lot of people? Uh, and what I mean by that is that when we talk about creativity and innovation, we know this is a good thing and we should apply the principles and the ethics, but then we have this idea that the canon is closed. You know, yeah. don't you dare add to it. That, that kind of thing. Like, I guess there's a real, I guess, a reluctance of parts, parts of the church to, I guess, do what they would see as moving beyond that. Canon. Yeah. I mean, I think the canon is closed mm. and I think it's closed because we've passed the time during which the church decided on what its normative text would be. And the canon process itself was highly controversial. I mean, there are some documents in the New Testament that, you know, that sort of, in a sense, squeaked in. Oh, Revelation, um, one of my favourites just squeaked in. <laughs> um, <laughs> even John's Gospel was, That's you right, know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but I think that, pro- that time is over. So uh, here's a question that I used to pose to students. Imagine if somebody an archaeologist in the, digging through the sands of Egypt found one of Paul's lost letters. So we know that Paul wrote more letters than we have yeah. recorded in the New Testament. They found one. Would it make it into the New Testament? So here's a question. Do you think they, just, they could actually establish this was authentically written by Paul? Um, we know that you know Paul wrote lots of documents that we now would claim were inspired. So would this lost letter make it in? And I used to think, when I first thought of that question, I used to not know what the answer was, but I'm now really sure what the answer is. Oh, I, I think the answer is no. Right. Because the canon is established, and I've, I've heard it described by, I think it was N.T. Wright, as the, the church's foundation charter. Yeah. And so, even though there are heaps of other things out there, and there might be good things, this is the charter, yep. and this is what we've got. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so what the canon does is, in a sense, it... it I mean, the word canon just means list. So it's a list of documents that the church has decided um, bears faithful witness to the originating impulse, the story of Jesus, and to the first outworking of that. And in a sense, the church has said, this is enough. This is enough for us to, you know, to be guided by. Um, it's not open for addition or subtraction. Um, so the, the, to me, the that that question is is clear, but within the canon, we I mean what the, what the church in a sense has done is canonize diversity. So it's and you you recognize you know you, you, Justin you talked about this you know Peter's sort of reaction to the vision of the tablecloth, or you think of Peter and Paul falling out at Antioch over whether Gentiles should share table with Jews, and so that there is within the canonite within the canon itself there is a. Um, an endorsement of struggle over fundamental issues. Um, it's not a kind. Of, it's not a uniform collection. Even 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 though there is this there is this clear unifying commitment to the centrality of Christ and the 
the work of Christ, but there is also enormous diversity in it. So, it almost seems like a spin job in some ways, where the church is trying to, no, 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 it's it's very consistent. You know, everything points in that one direction, as though, as though somehow that makes the sales pitch better and cleaner, rather than recognizing that everything's rooted in something that happened, something historical, yeah. and people got some stuff very wrong. And just because it's written down in the Bible doesn't mean it's endorsed. You know. A lot of the biblical heroes have massive failures, well, that's right. and they're recorded. Yeah. So, yeah. that's right. Because it's yeah, because it's recorded doesn't mean it's it's right. It's, yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, there's all sorts of nasty things described there. Yeah, and so I guess the the I guess the thing that we I guess want to take away from that is that the struggle is is part of coming to terms with it, and part yep. of you know that Jacob night of wrestling with God, if you want to yep. call it that. Yeah, and you know making mistakes is as part of growing in the faith, yep. not the enemy of faith, you know, you, that's right. you, yep. you sin and it's, oh, it's over. You know, it's not like that at all. Yep. I, I gave a talk about it, you know, several times recently to various Anglican dioceses around the country on Romans 14 and 15. So I mean, Romans is the most important document that the church has ever received. Uh, most influential document of all time, really. And so you know, profound theological reflection in the first 13 chapters. But then in chapters 14 and 15, suddenly Paul's addressing a real pastoral issue in the church, and mm. it was over disagreement on what in the first century were issues of even greater moment than the issues of sexuality are for people today. So it was a question of what role does Jewish law play in the mixed community in the New Age of the Spirit? I mean... Do Gentiles who come to faith have to obey the law of Moses mm. or not uh, in terms of ritual law and food and Sabbath observance and so on? And Paul has his own views on this issue and he's really clear. I'm, he says at one point, I know and I'm persuaded mm. that there is nothing unclean, um, but he also recognises that there are differences of opinion in the church. And he essentially, if I, if I understand his argument correctly, he essentially says that you have to, if you've reached the point where both sides, out of commitment to the Lordship of Christ, still can't agree, then you have to just accept each other and welcome each other in the same way Christ has welcomed you. And it's a kind of an expression of the Lordship of Christ. I mean, it's, it's his job to sort it out. And if, if the community can't agree on the issue, you know, rather than simply damning the other side or, or being locked in endless turmoil, he says, welcome one another in the same way that you have been welcomed. So it's, again, to me, this is actually part of the competitive edge of the Christian tradition because it's, it's not really about some kind of system of unchangeable beliefs. It's a story about God's redemptive action in the person of Jesus. And, and the scriptures are important to me Really, not only because, but primarily because they connect us with Jesus. And he's the one that lies at the heart of our faith, not not Scripture per se on its own. It's not like the Book of Mormon. I mean, it's... Because it was one of the other things that I um, heard some people say, and I didn't know how I was going to touch on it, but sometimes it does feel like we've made Scripture the fourth person of the Trinity, yeah. effectively, you yeah. know, where it just becomes this be-all and end-all kind of magic book where, yeah. you know... Chapter and verse, just go there, yeah. and you've got yeah. something. Yeah. Just a, yeah, and so it's very refreshing to hear that you know we've got to wrestle with this, and we can't just turn to a page for answer like a yeah. like a robot or something yeah. of that nature. Yeah, that's right. 
So we can't do that. We also can't just say it's all too hard. Let's just just you know live our life according to what seems best to us because it's only through the story of Scripture we, do we remain connected to the taproot of what it's all about. So, hmm. well, I guess, Chris, this is one of the, I think you're touching on the, the centrality of Jesus. And you mentioned this even in your talk that you, you asked us to remember that to ask the question anytime we're reading, I'd say probably Old or New Testament, what difference does Jesus yeah. make to, to yeah. the issue in the discussion? One of the things I would pick your brain about, we have a lot of people in our midst who are kind of new to faith. And, you know, they're always looking for ways to, to get a good understanding of Scripture. Do you have a sort of kind of suggested way of approaching the text? I'm guessing you're going to say start the Gospels <laughs> from what you just said. But, uh, yeah, is there is there kind of like a plan of attack for how you could kind of start getting your feet wet and reading uh, the story? Oh, gosh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, Richard Hayes, who's a great New Testament scholar, says in one of his books that Christians have to read the Bible from, how does he put it, from, is it front, beginning to end and from end to beginning? I can't remember quite how he puts it, but there's, a, you know, you pick up any book, you think, well, I start to read it, I'll read it at the beginning yeah, and I'll yeah. just read it through. Yeah. And if it's telling a big story, we'll, we'll get there. But that doesn't always work because you get lost in the, you get <laughs> the, lost in the detail. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so... It's partly reading, it's partly, the way I used to put it to my, again, to my students was to say we have to read the, certainly the Old Testament, first as a Jew and then as a Christian. So mm-hmm. for, you know, for, for Jews, the, the Torah remains the fundamental medium of God's voice to the community. And um, you, know, you don't need the New Testament, you, sh- you know, you just, you, you, you read it in terms of, of Jewish tradition. I think a, a Christian reading starts on the assumption that the story only will make sense for us today if we read it through the lens of the Jesus story. So in some ways we have to begin with Jesus, but we can't make sense of Jesus unless we locate Jesus within his Jewish background and within the story that he was part of. So it's sort of reading it, you know, back to front as well as front to back. I think that's the way that, that Hayes puts it. So for somebody new, I think I guess my suggestion would be to yeah, to probably begin in the Gospels and then to learn to read everything in light of that. Mm. Um, Is there a particular Gospel you'd recommend to start with? <laughs> you know he's biased. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was kind of curious. When I was a child, we did a lot of sort of door-to-door kind of stuff in our church. And it was the Gospel of John that was, was always used. Mm. And the Gospel of John is... You know, is beautiful and it's mm. you know supremely. I mean, it's just majestic, especially those opening chapters. Mm. But in some ways, it's the it's the I say least accessible. But it, it's not it's not one that quickly and easily puts you in contact with the kind of historical life of Jesus because it's a kind of meditation on Jesus I think it's not it's, synoptic it's not synoptic I mean it's it's I, I mean I think one way to understand John is as a meditation a spiritual reflection on the meaning of the life of Jesus mm-hmm. so um, I you know my I, I did my PhD on the gospel of Mark so I would I would want to <laughs> the action <laughs> to choose that as the action pack one um, it's the it's the basic narrative that Luke and, and Matthew have um, have based their work on and have, in a sense, expanded. I don't think it really matters which which one 
you choose. Um, and again, you know, going back to this question, isn't it interesting that we've been given a we've been given a scripture, we've given a Bible that has four gospels, not just one. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's right. You know, there's diversity even in that story, yeah. and yet there's also a remarkable similarity. I mean, I, New Testament scholarship over the over the last fifty years has been so enamoured with diversity. It's sometimes given you the impression that these gospels are completely yeah. different from each other, but they're not. There's a, there's 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 a remarkable consistency in the way that Jesus is portrayed. It's mm. the same recognisable person with the same recognisable commitments um, that comes through all of them, really, which I think is extraordinary. Mm. So, yeah. It's interesting. I, when I was prepping for the, the talk on Genesis, as a little bit of an aside. Uh, the point uh, that one of the scholars was making is that even the Jewish people came to know the story of Genesis after their redemption, essentially, you know, from, mm. from uh, post-Exodus on, the sort of kind of, well, you have to go back and make sense of this path that, that wasn't yeah, given to yeah. them. They knew, they knew the red- God as Yahweh first before they knew God as Creator, and that was kind of this main point he was making about the Old Testament, but relating it to us, that as the church, when we come into the church, we know Jesus first before we know the God of uh, that's been throughout the whole creation through Judaism, that whole journey. Mm. So I think that sort of affirms the sort of, I don't know, the approach to reading the text is the sort of, but like you said, I take that point. It's probably one of the big challenges we've had in our day since I've been alive really is to say, how do we understand Jesus as a Jew uh, mm. in that context mm. with that backstory? Because some of what's going on there, otherwise we can just interpret in all sorts of ways. Well, that's right. Ways. And we couldn't, we couldn't really do justice to Jesus at all. We mm. didn't really locate him. And that, that has been the, you know, in the post-war period that has been the single greatest emphasis. And in many ways, rediscovery in Christian scholarship has been the rediscovery of Jesus, mm. the Jew. Mm. Um, but there's a, there's a, a massive work on, on the Gospels called The Marginal Jew. It's now up to volume five or six, huge, big, massive um, work. But you know, he calls Jesus the marginal Jew. I mean, in mm-hmm. many ways, that's that's no, how we need to understand him. Yeah. So, well, so kind of building on this, so we we talk a little bit about practical starting for for someone new to the faith. But essentially, one of the things that we talk about as as a community is really how do we keep the story? How does the church? What are, as communally listen to it as story? Because one of the things that I've found challenging, even approaching the text, is we we turn on our critical sort of there's a difference when someone opens a book to you and says once upon a time. It's almost like you you sit back and what you're trying to do is kind of let yourself get into the world of the story without being highly critical. You you, you tend to approach it initially anyway when you're watching a film or when someone's reading you a book. It it seems to me, and I'm just proposing this, slightly different way we engage it from a posture than we do when someone starts reading us a chapter of scripture. It seems in general now we've kind of, we kind of, I don't know, turn on some sort of questions we already start kind of latching on to it to process it in a critical way mm. uh, i'm just curious to your thoughts about how the church can hear the text as story i mean we've structured it with verse numbers the whole book itself yeah, yeah. is cluttered with cross references yeah. so, so you can't really read it as a as a cover to cover narrative uh yeah. in the same way we read fiction um so i just don't know if you have any thoughts about yeah, how, the, how, the, how the faith community yeah. reads it and hears it as story um and then you can challenge me if you think I'm, I'm overstating the critical lens I think we have when we listen. But I... Well, I think we do. And we have a very atomistic way of listening 
as well, don't we? Just to take sort of isolated bits and to, yeah. and to try and understand them. And of course, the Bible's not just story. I mean, it contains right, lots yeah. of other That's genres right, it within yeah. it as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we we could overemphasize the narrative um, quality of Scripture. Um, I guess we, we could do that. But, I, I mean, I think on Sunday, I mean, you had memorized part of Genesis 1, mm-hmm. right? You told it from memory. And it's very arresting to listen to a person narrate well, not yeah, to narrate scripture rather than to read it. Mm. I used to have, when I, I taught hermeneutics class, I used to uh, ask for volunteers to, to memorize a biblical text and to perform it orally. And it's just a different experience mm. hearing somebody perform it rather than just sort of deadpan read it. Read it, yeah. Um, it's like, it really is like listening to it for the first time. And, and even if you know the text well, there's just something about the... And that's how scripture has historically largely been encountered is mm. by performance. Right. In fact, Mark's gospel was probably written to be an oral performance of the story of Jesus, which you heard in one in one hit. Mm. Take a couple of hours probably to go through it. Um, and I, be, if we could recover something of li, of the discipline of listening to tracts of scripture mm. rather than just to bite-sized bits, mm. I think that would be... Helpful, and in the in the in the kind of traditions, not not your one, but probably the ones that we come from, uh, the idea of of even having a discipline of listening to the text is pretty rare. Mm-hmm. There's no lectionary reading. There's no way of of the church actually hearing the scriptures read in any kind of systematic or or disciplined way. It's just mm-hmm. a, you know, a text for a preacher to launch off. Yeah. I know. So I've got. It'd be quite good. In mosaic, I think to recover some sort some, of dictionary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, where you listen to a chapter, or you listen to a, a decent chunk of it. Chunk of it, yeah. Because I think that's important. It's important to read lots of it at once. You know, yeah, to to, yeah. to really immerse yourself. Because as you were talking, Justin, I just had this thought of myself as a teenager reading Harry Potter almost all night. Mm. You know, because it was so engaging. Yeah. But then you open a Bible and it just seems like so daunting, I think. Yeah. Mm. And maybe not, I, maybe I wouldn't phrase it as, and, and, and for me personally, as that you get the critical lens on about, you know, what does this word, word mean? But you kind of think, oh, it's all so important. It's all so mm. weighty that you have to take it slowly and digest it because yeah. you'll miss something. That's right, yeah. And I think that, you know, when you you approach it that way, you kind of think, you kind of forget you can go back and read this anytime you want. And so, I don't know, I guess... It, the kind of when, when you when I hear us talking about listening to a chunk of scripture or reading it, you get excited because you think, oh, you know, we'll just you know, you can treat it like a story and, and fall in love with the characters of the story again and again. Yeah, it becomes kind of powerful. Yeah. And and I would like to see. I mean, this is. I mean, when you're when you're younger, I mean, the the readings during Catholic Mass can often just become noise. It would be interesting if it was memorized or performed. How different that would have felt because you know I remember tuning out for <laughs> lots yeah. of the because you know every every mass you have set readings you got to touch the gospels you're gonna get yeah. you're gonna get to the epistle and and you're gonna get little bits of them but you're gonna get a big reading and and usually I just remember sort of daydreaming during that time yeah. but it would be interesting just to see because I agree with you as a performance piece it does also change how critical you are of some of the people talking about how text you know and things are missed in manuscripts and all sorts of stuff. But in an oral tradition, I just feel like our your lens yeah. changes yeah. for, for yeah. what kind of pressure you put on people because you're like, hey, if you had to have yeah. the whole thing yeah. memorized and perform it, yeah, there's going to be little parts that get 
kind yeah. of adjusted here and there. That's right. Yeah. And in fact, this idea of consistency and novelty is part of oral tradition generally. So, <laughs> you know, no two oral performances are ever yeah, identical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every speech act is unique to some degree. Mm. So one of the ways of explaining the, the reason why we have four Gospels is that there are kind of four performances of the story of Jesus to different audiences in different situations. And, mm. um, Does this inform your view of uh, translations of the Bible? Like, you know, you have a set, a set of people who are, you know, King James only or, you know, NIV only. Like, does... I've been persecuted by some of them in the past. <laughs> no, I've got a file of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry, cut you off. I'm just, wondering, just, just um, wondering, like, what, you know, does does your view of translation, you know, change when you take this on? You know, like, are you are you more open to to reading different translations and being okay with that? I've never had a problem with that. I certainly, I'm, I, I, this is another whole recorded episode of the, the King James um, crowd. Mm. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are wrong with that with that position. <laughs> it's um. So I, yeah, translations are um, the attempt to render in English um, the meaning that's conveyed in the in the original languages. So, I mean, I think because again, we I don't think we should have a kind of superstitious view of the Bible. We want translations that speak in the language that we use and that that are intelligible and meaningful. And um, yeah, so I don't I don't have any difficulty at all with because mm. I, I mean I guess the reason I ask that is because you know we we immediately when you talk about translations we slip back into that almost Islamic view right the dictation of God yeah yeah where if you if you scribe that that word wrong you've invalidated the entire story you know yeah. it can't yeah. be the word of God because it's yeah. got an error yeah, yeah. I mean the, yeah I, I mean, there's the, the kind of balances here because I think the I think the early scribes did have extreme reverence for you know for the text, and you know, we we can see the effort, the extraordinary effort they went to 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 reproduce accurately what the, what the text was saying. But the fact is that there is no manuscript in existence that is identical to the text that we now have as our Bible. I mean, it's a critical reconstruction. You know, with the New Testament, there is something like, and I have to check my figures now, but a bit out of touch now, but it was several, there no, I think 5,000 Greek manuscripts alone, and then there's a whole diversity of, of Latin translations and, and various other languages. So there's an enormous amount of evidence that textual scholars have used to reconstruct the Greek New Testament, but what we now think is is the closest to the original that, that we can reconstruct is not like any existing manuscript. So it's a, it's in a sense it's a it's an exercise of scholarship that has created this. So the the kind of inerrancy um, language that fundamentalist um, Protestants have been, have used in the in the recent past depends on the idea that the originally delivered autographs are inerrant because we don't actually have them anymore. Mm. I mean, all the all the manuscripts we have, um, if you like, have errors in them uh, in, in the terms of scribal, you know, scribal mistakes. Um, but I suppose the, the important piece to, to stress there is that you don't think that invalidates the Bible as whole. You know, like you think it's just, it's just not really that much of an issue. No, that's right. Not at all. Because... For all the diversity that exists, there is, there is, um, 
I think we have such grounds for confidence that we actually have the text as close to the one that was actually, or the text, I should say, as close to the ones that were actually first authored uh, as we could ever want in terms of, of our confidence in it. So, yeah. Cool. Well, Chris, we appreciate you taking the time out to, to chat with us. And we, I, I feel like I'm just getting my, my feet wet in this whole, how do we actually do this in terms yeah. of work it out and live it? I, I don't know if there's any kind of closing thoughts you want to leave us with, and especially in terms of you've probably seen because all the years teaching and students coming through, a kind of message to the, this generation coming up with how, how we continue to engage in this practice of living out our faith today in light of this big story. Mm. Uh, I know the forces and challenges, every, every generation has a new challenge to face. Yeah. And yeah, I, just, I don't know if you have any thoughts to close us. Yeah, well, that's, again, that's, that's, a, that's a really big one because I, I suspect the real challenge that we face today is, is a loss of knowledge of the text entirely. I mean, I don't, I don't think people read as much as they used to and they don't read as carefully as they used to. Um, so the challenge, I think, today is as much to, 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 to be acquainted and to keep our acquaintance with the text growing, um, which wasn't, say, a challenge in my father's day and, and, and not even so much a challenge in my, you know, my youth. But I think today it probably is that mm. there is really a, a falling level of biblical literacy around, um, which is alarming because of what we could lose as a result of that. Because we, if we lose a kind of grounding in the text, then how do we make any judgments about anything? So, so I think, and in the kind of social media age where people's attention spans are so so limited, <laughs> and you know it's all the soundbite kind of environment, I think probably the big challenge is for us to just. Um, help people f gain access to the text for it to mm. be accessible in mm. some way yeah mm. um, without requiring a kind of postgraduate theology degree in order <laughs> to feel confidence to do it so, so that's, uh, I'm very appreciative of you taking the time out I know you're traveling and so we'll, we'll wrap up for tonight it's good cool. and we have several more sessions in Mosaic going on uh, so we hope you stay with us as we, we go through the, the big meta story of scripture we're picking up uh, upcoming week with Phil, who's going to take us through uh, Act 1 again, but this time focusing on uh, what we learn about humanity from the opening text, which is uh, something to look forward to. And then we'll work our way all the way through the six acts that we have, and, and uh, hopefully we'll do it all in this year. So <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>